Episode 1224 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangrass, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of Brian Colangelo's least favorite website, The Ringer, and I am joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangrass. Hello. That's a good introduction. I'm proud of you. Yeah, I'm not going to do it every time, but I figured <laughs> just today. How was your trip? It was good. Anything interesting? Yes. <laughs> Anything interesting you want to share? <laughs> when we were landing, I I always loved... I don't know why some people don't seem to appreciate window seats on airplanes. I know that you get a little cramped. And, you know, if, you, if you're if you a frequent bathroom user, then I guess that could be a, an issue. But otherwise, what cramped. a... I feel like it's less cramped. Well, it's, it's certainly less cramped than the middle seat. But I'm a window seat guy, too, if yeah, I can no. be. Love the window seat. Love just appreciating yeah. the earth and all the things you, you can see. And when you go to Mexico City, oftentimes, uh, not only is it a gigantic, it's like the seventh biggest city in the world. So it's crowded and you can't see around uh, the city very much. It's hard to get to a high place to get a good view. But we were able to get some views outside of the airplane window. And as we were landing, we had a very brief glimpse of both the Stoxiwatl and Popocatepetl, which are two very prominent, gigantic volcanoes. Wow, nice pronunciation on that. Thank you. I've had years of experience. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, I could tell. One of them is extinct. The other one is quite active. And uh, Popocatepetl erupts. It's in a, an active phase. It's been in an active phase, I think, for something like four or five years. I don't know exactly, but... It's uh, it's tens of miles away from Mexico City, but it's huge. It's like 18,000 feet above sea level. It's visible from above the smog layer of Mexico City. And as we were landing, I got to see the thing for like five minutes. And I swear to God, it erupted a little bit while I was Ooh. looking at it. Not uh, not, not one you. of those like cataclysmic eruptions. It doesn't really do that very often, but it, it puffed. It had a big ash cloud and everything. It was fantastic. Wow. Oh, congrats. Can you, you say that name one more time? Popo- <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yes, I can. Uh. In a sentence. Popocatepetl. It's fun because <laughs> it's all hard consonants. Estoxiwatl <laughs> is weird. You kind of like have to walk on eggshells around it. But Popocatepetl is just fun to say. I don't know. Some people pronounce the L. Some people don't. It's complicated. But it's, I think it's a Nahuatl language. I could be wrong on that one. But it's a, it's a lot of fun. Well, I enjoyed that. Well, if Casey were wondering if, had you been on the ground, you could have roasted a marshmallow on it, we have an answer to that question. We just received an email from listener Alec, who alerted us to the fact that the U.S. Geological Survey answered this hypothetical. It's sort of an effectively wild email if this podcast were about volcanoes all the time. And someone asked the USGS, is it safe to roast marshmallows over volcanic vents, assuming you had a long enough stick, that is, or would the resulting marshmallows be poisonous? And the USGS says, we're going to have to say, no, that's not safe. Please don't try. If the, <laughs> if the vent is emitting a lot of sulfur dioxide or hydrogen sulfide, they would taste bad, bad in all caps. And if you add sulfuric acid in VOG, for example, there's that word, VOG, my favorite, to sugar, you get a pretty spectacular reaction. So now you know. However... I remember seeing a link. This is like old GeoCities internet, but it stuck with me for all the years since. You can imagine why. I remember seeing a link a very long time ago about how to cook a chicken in lava when wrapped in banana leaves. I am looking at the link right now. It's an ugly website. It's from dolphinbayhilo.com slash cook.html. Step one, preparation. You need one game hen or pork loin. Eight 
tea or banana leaves, one shovel and gloves. I guess that's one shovel, two gloves, maybe one. One 2000 degree Fahrenheit fresh lava flow. Spice the game hen to individual taste and wrap it in leaves, one leaf at a time. This part is important. Step two, prepare the oven. The oven being, I guess, the lava. I'm not going to read the entire website, but there are <laughs> pictures. It's been done. I'm looking at a very overcooked chicken. Step seven is actually known as break and eat. So you have to break it open to get to the chicken, but it is cooked. Yeah, I would think that overcooking is the only way you could cook anything in lava, probably, but I haven't tried. So I don't know how much you kept up with baseball, the sport that you write about for a career while you were away. I know we've talked about the disorientation of returning to baseball after being away and how even if you miss one day, it seems like you're totally out of the loop. You missed more days than that. So let's see, things that have happened since we last spoke. Ronald Acuna and Noah Syndergaard and Andrew Miller and Greg Holland and Hugh Darvish and Byron Buxton again went on the disabled list. Byron Buxton apparently was hurt the entire time anyway. What else? Alex Reyes returned from the disabled list. And was pulled early because people were afraid he was hurt. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Anthony Rizzo did a dirty slide and got away with it, but then learned that he shouldn't have gotten away with it. Pablo Sandoval started at second base, and Russell Martin is a shortstop and a left fielder now, so a lot changed while you were gone. Your boy, Wilmer Font, got traded again, and uh, I hope he has better results this time. And you and I didn't get to talk about the Mariners trade, although you had to, I guess, uh, cut your vacation about an hour short so that you could come back to blog about that trade. But we since learned that Effectively Wild guest David Hesslink was one of two, I guess you could say, lower-level baseball operations employees who proposed that trade. And there was a story by Corey Brock on The Athletic about how that came about. And basically, DePoto just seems to have farmed out the generation of trade ideas to an army of low-level front office people. So they just were like, well, we need an outfielder. You're (laughs) going to talk to Jerry on Tuesday. Everyone come up with ideas. So everyone got together and they had a whiteboard and they just kind of went through every outfielder and pitcher on every other team. And they came up with this proposal that ended up being the exact proposal that they were able to convince Tampa Bay to make. So good job, David Hesslink, former Effective Out guest and I don't think Jerry DePoto needs any help generating trade ideas, but apparently he has it. But I guess maybe he's always farmed it out or tried to farm it out. I don't know. But talk about a great way to keep the the newer people to the front office involved, because that's exactly what you want to do when you join a front office, right? You want to be involved in the moves. So to propose a trade where you get another team's closer and starting position player, and you're 23 or 24 years old, I know there are two people involved. I'm I'm forgetting the name of... The other one, because he has not been an effectively wild guest, although I guess we are open if you're if you're out there and looking to talk about the trade that you partially helped generate. But yeah, that, I had to cut some errands short because I it was your message that, uh, that you sent to me while I was driving away from home to get a few things at the store. And, uh, and you said, so Jerry's done it again. And so I looked at my email and sure enough, there was a press release and I said some yep. words that you say in traffic, but for unusual reasons. Uh, and turned around and wrote for two hours about the Mariners making a trade. Six o'clock yes. on a Friday evening. That was stupid. Skylar Shibayama was the other 
member of the trade proposal team there. So don't want to give him short shrift. What else happened? Rob Manfred spoke to Ken Rosenthal. He did a very long Q&A this week, and he touched on something that we have discussed recently, which is the need for MLB maybe to actually do something. And uh, (laughs) we talked to Joe Sheehan about this, how MLB really hasn't made a substantive rule change, at least when it comes to things like the strikeout rate or things that could affect the strikeout rate in decades. And maybe for the first time, first time I can really recall, Manfred is pretty explicit here about at least considering doing something. It doesn't sound like anything is imminent, but let's see if I can pull up the comments. He said it a few different ways. He said sort of that the pace of play stuff he considered low-hanging fruit and The actual style of play and action is a little more difficult, but they are transitioning to thinking about that now. So he said, there is a growing recognition that analytics have produced certain trends in the game that we may need to be more proactive about reversing. That was one way he said it. He said, we need to be more aggressive about managing the trends that have been introduced in the game, at least partly based on analytics. He went on. He said it in one or two other ways. He said, the hope always is the game is going to self-correct. But it looks like we are at the point in time that we do need to think about and really analyze some potential changes. So I don't know what those changes will be. He didn't seem to want to get into specifics, but at least we are gradually moving to the point where maybe we will see some sort of change to correct the creeping three true outcomeization of baseball. There was even a weird excerpt in there where Ken Rosenthal and and Manfred talked about split seasons as if that's something that was ever going to come back. Now, I don't, we haven't, you and I haven't talked about the concept of split seasons on this podcast. You might have with Sam before. I don't know, but I don't know how popular that would be. And Manfred seemed, he brought it up and then dismissed it immediately, which made it a weird hypothetical for him. But also what I liked is, is uh, Rosenthal asked him about, he brought up the, the, Proposal that Manfred sort of loosely, lightly floated some years ago that didn't gain any traction, but did send Twitter in saying that Manfred was thinking about banning shifts. And Mm -hmm. I liked in there, obviously nothing has been done about shifts. And if you've been reading Russell Carlton's work, maybe shifts aren't really actually working. But anyway, that's a topic for another day. I like how Manfred, everyone seems to have been surprised by the fact that no batters just still don't bunt. No one does it. Manfred's just like, yeah, we thought that bunting would counteract the shift and it hasn't happened. It hasn't happened like at all. Almost no one Mm -hmm. is trying to do it. And it, I I think it, for me, it goes in waves of being surprised that batters still don't bunt. Mm -hmm. It comes up like, I don't know, twice a year where I think, why don't they just, and then I remind myself, well, bunting is hard. And then I remind myself, well, then why don't they try it more? (laughs) It's right there. There's free hits, but it's still... It goes, I don't know, it's like looking at Jose Molina's old framing numbers. You kind of know them, and then you forget Mm -hmm. them, and then you look at it again, you're like, (laughs) oh my god, he could be an MVP! (laughs) Yeah, and I wonder whether his willingness or his openness to doing something has anything to do with the decline in attendance, which I have no idea whether that is at all connected to the style of play. I kind of tend to doubt it. But attendance is down 6 or 7% relative to last year on a per-game basis through the same point. I'm sure a lot of that has to do with the weather. It really was bad and anomalous weather, particularly in April. There were a lot of games played in very cold weather and makeup games and cancellations, so... 
that definitely is part of it. And for all I know, it might be all of it. But he maybe is more willing to make changes if MLB is not quite as profitable. And he also mentioned this was in an AP article by Ronald Blum. He sort of blamed tanking in a sense. In the Rosenthal Q&A, he sort of poo-poos the idea that tanking is really all that significant or worrisome. And I don't really disagree with what he said about that. But he did say... I would say the weather has been the overriding factor, but certainly the negative publicity surrounding some teams has played a part as well. I think it's clear that publicity suggesting a lack of competitiveness by a team is really problematic in terms of attendance. He also found a way to then get a dig in at Tony Clark by basically saying that the teams that Tony Clark said were tanking are doing just fine, which is kind of true. But he did say that at least openly saying that you are not really competing in the current year, probably bad for attendance. And maybe there is some truth to that. Looks like Pirates attendance is down about 7,000 people per game. They're in the race. Mm-hmm. So that's weird. Blue Jays attendance happens to be down by the most. I'm going to guess without checking that, that maybe they just have they ho- not hosted the Red Sox or the Yankees yet I don't know but <laughs> Blue Jays know. attendance is down 11,000 people per game relative to Oof. last season that's a lot on the other hand Astros attendance is up 8,000 Brewers attendance is up 5,000 Diamondbacks attendance is up a bunch I don't know there's nothing really here for me to analyze A's attendance is down 400 people per game you had a Shohei Otani themed brunch I was able to <laughs> I was able to keep track of the internet there's a there's data <laughs> yeah. on my plan in Mexico so I was able to kind of see what was going on I went through the uh, Acuna emotions like a lot of other people did but yeah so <laughs> tell me I don't know if you already explained this because I was not present for part of the podcasting last week for a variety <laughs> of reasons including Jerry DePoto but I know you mentioned that because Otani wasn't clear to pitch on Sunday that he spoiled mm-hmm. the brunch plan but clearly uh you <laughs> you guys went ahead with it anyway so yeah. how much prep three questions how much time <laughs> and preparation went into that how many people were present and for how much of that, if at all, were you personally responsible? You being Ben, Ben Lindbergh. Yeah. Uh, the last question, zero, <laughs> just about. And the first question, how much time went into preparation? For me, also zero. But for my <laughs> wife, Jessie, quite a lot. And uh, also for the guests. I don't know exactly what the head count was, but it was pretty crowded. There were, I don't know, 10, 15 people over here for Angel's Brunch and... Otani hit, he did not pitch, but we had a whole spread. I took some pictures and tweeted them and put them in the Facebook group of themed snacks that uh, we had on hand for this event. We had Mike Sosha's rotation waffles, which was a reference to his, of course, removing Otani from the rotation or delaying his next start. We had Mike Dilly Trout. I was not familiar with Dilly Trout, but it's a kind of trout, and uh, that was pretty tasty. It was like smoked trout and endives and a bunch of other tasty things. We had Andrelton cinnamon rolls, which was probably the the best play on words that we had. We had uh, muffins Maldonado. We had angel food cake. Of course, we had the trout-endorsed super pretzels. And we also had Halo's brand oranges. So we had a a whole lot of angels-themed food on hand, and it was pretty fun, I think. It it worked out well. I don't know whether this is something that will ever happen again. (laughs) I doubt it will sweep the nation. And uh, Otani is pitching on Wednesdays at this point, so that doesn't really lend itself to future Otani brunches. But it was pretty good. 
Yeah, and I guess you could, since you already had the sort of the, what, the clementines, the tangerines, the little halo brandy, didn't need like halo yeah. ice cream, but that also could have worked. We don't need to come up mm-hmm. with more suggestions. I'm sure people have already done this. Yes. Uh, Jabari Blash also just kind of sounds like a brunch cocktail, but unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't think he's on the active roster anymore. Yeah, we had quiche, and we couldn't think of a good pun for quiche, but someone, I think, in the Facebook group or on Twitter, yeah, it was, it was my friend Xavier actually suggested Eric Hintz quiche. Which uh, I wish I had thought of in time, but did not. So the quiche went nameless. Uh, what else? Was there anything else? I don't think so. I got nothing. Well, I guess there, there's a sort of the uh, the fun fact, and I know that maybe I am paying more attention to this than other people are, but it would be last Friday the Rays made a trade that, of course, saved them some money, and people interpreted it as just more evidence that the Rays are tanking, just trying to rebuild. And since then, the Rays mm-hmm. swept the weekend they are currently mm-hmm. over 500 i believe the rays are one game over 500 so as an update on three teams this offseason i know the a's were considered sort of a dark horse but mm-hmm. the rays the a's the pirates forever playing for about the same place they're trying to be aiming for about 500 and hoping to be better than that while maintaining a lot of resources for the future the rays are one game over 500 the a's are one game over 500 and the pirates are two games over 500 so they are all nailing it they're all kind of mm-hmm. doing exactly what they want to be doing and you know what team had the most incredible mind-blowing writer happy offseason of anyone in baseball it was the twins twins are active everywhere the twins suck so (laughs) just further evidence offseason narratives are stupid based on one third of the season lots of time for these (laughs) things to change but yep i don't know how these narratives get out of control i understand that you don't want to give front offices the benefit of the doubt as just like a general Mm -hmm. rule but when it i think teams indicate when they're tanking and teams indicate when they're not they don't say that word necessarily not Mm -hmm. in in baseball but they'll say yeah we're gonna step back for a little while (laughs) hang with us we're trying to get good and stay good later Mm -hmm. yeah i mean you know the white Sox are bad and the marlins are bad and the reds are bad and the padres are bad some of this is predictable obviously but Mm -hmm. i didn't think there was really a tanking epidemic going on at least long term and at least so far i mean even if there are bad teams and i guess there are what on pace to be a few hundred win teams and at least a few hundred lost teams which is somewhat unusual at least relative to recent history so the league is sort of stratified but it doesn't look like the races are any worse at least so far obviously there's plenty of time for some teams to put these things away and for things not to be all that interesting in september but at least right now shaping up to be pretty interesting races all over the place yep after action on may 1st the arizona diamondbacks pulled up to 21 and 8 they were tied for the best record in baseball with the boston red sox they had a good run differential they had everything to go with it they led their own division by six games may 1st Mm -hmm. six game lead two games behind the rockies as i say this diamondbacks (laughs) have come completely apart yeah All right, let's do some emails, and let's start with two emails that we've gotten about Glaber Torres, who we've probably neglected so far this season, I would say. Glaber Torres right now, through 124 plate appearances, he is currently in a game as we speak, but he's running a 158 weighted runs created plus right now at 21. That is pretty darn impressive. He has nine home runs already. So two questions about Torres that are 
both pretty related here. So Dunnigan from Saskatchewan says, this question is related to an article Katie Sharp just wrote for The Athletic. Taking a look at the peripheral stats for Glaber Torres' hot start, she seemed to think all the peripherals pointed to relative sustainability in his output. She showed a graph of location of pitches he has hit home runs on, and they were all pretty inside. My question is, should we be praising Torres for being able to hit the inside pitch for a home run, or does this pattern point to a pretty easy adjustment for pitchers to start pitching to the upper outside half of the plate in order to sap his power and resulting in diminished home run numbers in the future? I'm aware this is an incredibly small sample, but while this question is about Torres, I'm really curious about rookies in general who come up and mash a specific pitch or location, and whether it's a good thing that they have a hot zone, or if it just leads to pitcher adjustments and second half slumps. And then Charlie says, I'm watching the first game of the Angels-Yankees series. Ken Rosenthal is in the booth talking with Michael Caine, Paul O'Neill about the Torres-Otani Rookie of the Year race, which is going to be interesting. I think they are tied in Fangraph's War right now. And they talked about Torres's power in the majors being a revelation. Anyway, simple question. Is this a ball thing? Could this just be the difference in the AAA and Major League ball? So people want to know. Is Glaber Torres's power for real? Speaking of the ball thing, I just wish I could have been present for that conversation that we got to have last week. Once again, Jared yes. Boto got way. I would love to know what was discussed. I guess it's on me to listen to the podcast yes. that I should have been on. Anyway, <laughs> so first of all, it is interesting to look at rookies who come up and, and mash immediately because on the one hand, you that's always interpreted as great news. This guy was ready and he's, he's just going to help the team forever. But then mm-hmm. almost invariably, there's going to be some sort of slump or adjustment or fine tuning period where people will figure out a little bit more about the player that just kind of comes with with the territory. And it's it's one of the I know Reese Hoskins has had a down May even before he hit a ball off his own face. And mm-hmm. you look at what he did last season. Matt Olson kind of went through this, too. They were really, really good for a couple of months last season, but they weren't really around long enough to get adjusted to. And I would suspect that's a little bit of what we're seeing. Doesn't mean that they're bad, just means that they have something to to work through. And with with Glaber Torres, everyone is going to have some sort of hot zone, unless you're Jeff Mathis, in which case it's just varieties <laughs> of different cold zones. And also every single hitter short of prime Miguel Cabrera is going to be is going to have a weak spot somewhere. And the question, I don't think that you can really analyze Glaber Torres's skill set or almost anyone's skill set just by looking at the numbers alone when you have a small sample. You kind of need to look at what their actual hitting looks like because you can have a guy mm-hmm. who can I remember it, I think it was early early last season, I was really amazed by uh by Taylor Motter who had like a really good yeah. first month and I thought, "Wow, this guy looks like he's really figured." No, he didn't. He just uh he <laughs> figured out that if I try to overpull everything, I can hit a few home runs, but he just didn't have the skills to actually do anything else as soon as pitchers mm-hmm. threw him fewer things than he could do that too. Uh, I don't think anyone's concerned that Glaber Torres is going to be that limited. He doesn't need to focus on like one-tenth of the outfield area to try to hit all batted balls. He probably is going to be more exploitable up and away than he is going to be inside based on at least on what he looks like right now and what he's done. But a lot of hitters are exploitable up and away. J.D. Martinez is a guy who's not exploitable up and away, but he loves hitting to the opposite field. There are Mm -hmm. very few players who are perfect to all fields and can cover every single part of the zone. And if you are Glaber Torres, and if you find that you are vulnerable to pitches up and away, you just kind of wait those pitches out. Mike Trout waits those pitches out sometimes. Glaber Torres can wait them out, and pitchers are not so good 
that they can hammer one ninth of the zone over and over and over. This is why Jose Batista was able to have so many good seasons in a row, even though he hit the same pitch every single time for a home run. People know mm-hmm. you have to pitch him low and away, but pitchers can't really do that with that much consistency. What was the qu- second question about the ball? Yeah, the ball does more stuff in the majors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Gleyber Torres was one of the very best prospects in baseball before he came up, and just getting to the majors at this age is impressive, and he's going to be good, so... Will he keep hitting home runs at this rate? No, obviously not. But, you know, he's kind of, I guess, in the Ozzy Albies territory where we knew he was really good and we just didn't know that he had this power. And so that obviously makes you more optimistic about him. So he hit one home run in 14 games in AAA this year, and he's hit nine in 31 in the majors. So that's not typical, obviously, but he's so young that... It's not like we knew necessarily what his power ceiling was. I mean, last year, I guess he hit, what, uh, seven homers in 55 games. I mean, he was not a big power guy, but he could be. He is in a stadium that's conducive to it, and anyone can get hot over a small sample. So obviously you think more highly of him because he has a hot zone and he comes up, right? I mean, there's no way in which you would like him less because he hit a bunch of homers in a short period of time. (laughs) It doesn't mean that he will continue to do that, but... Yeah, and when you look at him, when you look at where he's hit his home runs, he's only hit one homer over to right center field, and I'm not even sure if that was in Yankee Stadium, according to what I'm looking at. It doesn't say, so never mind. But even if it had been in Yankee Stadium, maybe it was, he's hit his other home runs all to left, left center, or center Mm -hmm. field, which is not where Yankee Stadium is a joke. So yeah, if a guy is hitting the ball out, that means the guy can hit home runs. Now... At the same time, I've gotten questions every so often. Have you noticed by any chance, first of all, if I say the name Miguel Rojas, do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, we talked about him, I think, right? The Marlins shortstop? I'm not going to lie to you. We probably did. (laughs) Yeah, briefly. Uh, Yeah, sure. Great. Whatever. So just remember all of that. But Miguel Rojas has seven home runs this season. He has been the Marlins regular shortstop. It was supposed to be JT Riddle. I guess good news for them that it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Marlins, it's, it's a weird season. But Miguel Rojas is in his fifth major league season. Here are his home run totals, starting with the first, 2014, going year by year. One, 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 <laughs> one, seven. Seven being this season, and we're a third of the way through. And when I have looked at Miguel Rojas, I mean, even if Miguel Rojas, he's, not, he's 29, even if he were having a huge breakout season, I think we'd all kind of wait to write about that one anyway, because what's mm-hmm. the attention that's going to be paid to a Miguel Rojas breakout? But when I've looked at him, I just think, well, this is a guy who clearly doesn't actually have very much power, but he just happens to have put enough good swings on enough pitches that he has hit more home runs than you'd expect. Doesn't mean that he is all of a sudden on a 20 or 30 home run pace or that he will end up there. But he's right. always been home run capable, and whenever you're home run capable, you can just run into a few extra balls over a span of time. Glaber Torres has probably done that, given his own power background. He's probably not going to be a 40-homer threat unless all of his other teammates are also 40-homer threats. But yeah, mm-hmm. when you are this young, the ball does fly more in the major leagues, apparently, than it does in the minors. You and I have both written about that. And yeah, out of all of the Yankees, I believe it's 12, maybe 13 Yankees who've batted at least 50 times. Only Neil Walker has a below-average batting line. Yeah, well, I was just going to mention, right, their pursuit of the all-time team home run record, which you wrote about back in February. Of course, the record is the 97 Mariners. They hit 264 home runs. 
So the Yankees entered play on Wednesday with 87 homers in 51 games. That is a pace for 276 home runs. So they are on pace to do it. You also wrote about how the Orioles were projected (laughs) to break that record as well. They are not on pace to break that record. The uh, the Orioles are right in the middle of the pack, actually, in home runs. So not working out so well for them. But Yankees are probably going to do the thing that everyone thought they might do. Yeah, that's going to be uh, one of those articles you read in September. And you do all the all the numbers. You say, look, look at the context. The Yankees have smashed this record. And then like 500 people read it, and that's it. Because everyone <laughs> has yeah. already known. And what is sort of more interesting is that the Orioles will not sniff the record because they are terrible and chris davis has only four home runs chris davis has been unbelievably bad oh my god 198 (laughs) plate appearances he's got a wrc plus of 31 oof well byron buxton wishes he had 31 (laughs) but while we're on the subject of yankee stats i just saw this post in the facebook group from listener lucas who did a, a little play index of his own. We'll, we'll do our own play index shortly. But butt out, Lucas! <laughs> Being a flower of the Yankees, I am aware that Dylan Betances is absolutely terrible at holding on base runners. However, until today, I didn't realize quite how legendarily terrible he is. I went to the play index to grab some career reliever stats going back to 1908, with the criteria at 90% games pitched in relief, at least 1,000 batters faced, And he calculated stolen bases per hit plus walk plus hit by pitch, which would give me a reasonably accurate measure of a base runner denominator. The numbers, Dallin Batensis, 18% stolen bases per base runner. So (laughs) 18% of the base runners that Batensis has allowed have stolen a base, essentially. And Lucas says the average rate is about 5%. So 18% is kind of amazing. Apparently, Batensis is number one all-time right now. Rob Dibble was 17%. Tim Scott, 15%. Scott Strickland, 13%. Tied with Kenley Jansen at 13%. And then a bunch of guys at 12 and 11%. But that's a thing that you now know uh, about Dylan Batensis. He is the worst at something. And that was our stat blast, so that's brought to you by... <laughs> Uh, I actually have a step less today, but uh, well, should we just do them all right now or Whoa. should we space them out a little? I don't Let know. Let me tell you, here's one that is now related to that one, which wasn't a step okay. less, but which functions as such. So mm-hmm. I knew Dylan Batances was bad at this. In 2016, he allowed 21 stolen bases out of 21 attempts. So that's yeah. bad. He's already allowed eight stolen bases. Last year, he allowed eight stolen bases. Dylan Batances has <laughs> caught up to last season in the steals that he's allowed. And his OBP has allowed has gotten lower. He's improved huh. as a pitcher, and yet people still just run him on him like crazy, which might be why his ERA is still four and a half, despite the fact that he struck out like half the people that he's faced. Yeah, could be. All right, Buddy says, can you guys please do a segment on how dumb MLB's error scoring rules are? I'm watching today's Mariners versus A's game, and a Kyle Seeger routine pop-up just dropped between three confused defenders. MLB.com defines an error as a fielder is given an error if, in the judgment of the official score, he fails to convert an out on a play that an average fielder should have made. Fielders can also be given errors if they make a poor play that allows one or more runners to advance on the bases. A batter does not necessarily need to reach base for a fielder to be given an error. If he drops a foul ball that extends an at-bat, that fielder can also be assessed an error. But he continues, Clearly, if any one of the three A's defenders behaved like an average high school varsity player and called the doggone ball, Seeger is out. 
Nobody touched the ball, so no error is given, but the fact that nobody touched the ball is what made the play below average times three. Why? You guys know more than I do. Debatable, is there something I'm missing? It seems like all three bumbling players deserve an error. Seager deserved an out, and the pitcher deserved to be out of the inning. Please help. I'm tired of seeing pitchers get charged with earned runs because three knuckleheads had simultaneous amnesia around the phrase, I got it. So I forwarded this to our official score friend and listener and asked for his take on this. And he says a similar play ended a game in Houston versus the Padres in April. You remember this one, right? With Eric oh, yeah. Hosmer <laughs> overrunning a routine pop fly in the infield for a 1-0 walk-off win for the Astros. It was scored a hit. Often in these types of situations, there has been some discussion of awarding a team error rather than to a specific fielder. There has been zero traction for this approach within any of the MLB powers that be, so I would highly doubt anything along those lines would happen in the future. He says, check out this famous play in Texas involving a no-hitter. It was uh, May 2014. It was the one where... David Ortiz ended a perfect game. Ortiz broke up the perfect game, reaching on an error in the seventh, and then he had the single in the ninth. But the error was one of these errors. And so the official score continues. Check out the discussion as this play was initially ruled an error and later changed by MLB to a hit. And was this the one where David Ortiz uh, protested? I think maybe it was. I know he did that sometimes. Anyway, he says the listener has a valid point. I think the thought across the league is that these types of plays need to be scored consistently, even if the application is flawed. Also, there's nothing in the rules requiring a player to touch a ball to be given an error. However, the argument I hear from the this is a hit group is that this misplay is a mental error of communication, which causes the play to be beyond ordinary effort when applying the error standard. What? (laughs) I guess the thought is that it's... It's difficult to communicate. It's above the ordinary communication effort because you got a bunch of guys closing on a pop-up in no man's land. And so, therefore, it's it's hit-worthy. Now, would it be worth having... So, in football, I am given to understand there are partial sacks. You can split a sack Mm, or something like that, right? right? You can have... 0.5. 0.5. If you mm-hmm. if you can't get traction for a team error, because whatever, it's kind of like a in hockey. I guess you get team penalties. You can get team penalties in other sports, like too many men on the ice or too many men on the field or something that's not assigned to anyone. But if mm-hmm. if you're in baseball, why not? Could you get away if you can't get traction for a, a, assigning a team error? What about assigning like a third of an error in this case, and also a third of a chance or something like mm-hmm. that for each player? Just Something where it would make people because then if you were the pitcher, it just all counts as one error and it should have been should not have been a base runner. And then you can get your unearned run. Not that anyone cares about these things anyway, but right just seems like it would be an easy solution. But you can understand why this would be so unimportant to yeah. the powers that be that I mean, at the same time, maybe it would be so unimportant that they could just wave it off and be like, yeah, sure. Do what you want. Official scores. Nobody cares. But mm-hmm. I guess they would cause a lot of consternation and change and some people get very upset about these things yeah no one wants more fractions in their lives so i don't know that anyone wants to see a one-third in a column at baseball reference but you're right the thing is that you can afford to not let this bother you because you can just not pay attention to anything that really has to do with errors right if you're just not really looking at earned runs i mean Mm -hmm. if a pitcher allows this kind of pop-up that happens to drop 
it reflects well on him in some ways. If you're looking at launch angles or exit speeds or anything like that, or you know anything that's based on batted balls instead of outcomes, it will make him look better. And there are just better, more insightful things that you can look at. So I don't know. Don't let it get you down, buddy. That's kind of uh, the real, the re- the real feel-good story here is that for all these the, these scoring inconsistencies, like the save or the win, is that people just don't the people who matter don't care about a lot of the dumb stats mm-hmm. anymore because they're right. proven to be kind of dumb stats. So of course, mm-hmm. executives and and people around the game still care about high leverage pitching, and people still mm-hmm. care about pitchers who give you a great chance to win the game. That's kind of the whole point, but. Yeah, if you if you allow a whole bunch of bloopers and they just happen to fall in, it's really windy where you play or something. Then, even though, well, actually, here's here's where we come down to a, some trouble with expected woba allowed is that actually if you allow a bunch of bloopers that off the bat are like perfect velocity and angle to drop in as bloopers, you will allow a very high expected woba, but <laughs> yeah. it would still reflect well in your like actual batted balls allowed. So it just gets a little more complicated than X woba. But in any case, mm-hmm. if there's a stat and you think it's antiquated or outdated or stupid, chances are no one aboard in baseball is paying attention to it anyway. And so maybe it's bad news for your fantasy team, but that's not bad news for me or anyone else. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. Jimmy says, is Felix Hernandez salvageable? Oh. If not, what sort of statistical trends move a pitcher from declining to done? Why, Ben? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, gosh. So, yeah, it, it depends on why this is the saddest that I've been while forcing a <laughs> smile. No one can see me right now. I'm making myself smile because I think that you can hear it in my voice that I'm happy, trying to be happy. So Felix Hernandez yeah. right now, is uh, he's bad. If you look at his numbers, he's been kind of bad for for a few years he's not throwing mm-hmm. strikes he's not missing bats there is the whole conversation we had preseason where the king's court is no longer yeah. supposed to chant k it's like <laughs> pitch to contact but it's all <laughs> bad news so just based on the quality of his stuff like it, it's kind of fine i know his, his velocity has actually gotten worse i i'm gonna be honest with you i hadn't looked at it at these things in a while because i didn't have a good reason yeah. to but if cc sabathia can become a useful pitcher Again, Mm -hmm. I don't know why Felix Hernandez couldn't. I used to hold myself to the unrealistic expectation that Felix could go the way of Justin Verlander and just Mm refind everything because Justin Verlander, I think, hasn't allowed a run since last (laughs) season, at least in the playoffs. But if the problem with Felix Hernandez is that he's just physically not healthy, which, I mean, with all the miles on his arm, then I think that would not be unrealistic. There's that clause in his contract that says the team gets a league minimum year if he misses a season with Tommy John surgery. That's probably him mm. there for a reason. Mm-hmm. If Felix isn't healthy, you probably can't really expect him to find the command that he needs for his pitches until or unless some sort of medical intervention were to take place to allow him to heal. But Based on how his pitches move, I mean, he's he still has, he's got all his experience, he's got all the pitch movement, his fastball and changeup can still work off of one another when he has good at-bats, they look like good at-bats, but ultimately, if he actually can't command the ball the way that he needs to be able to, then if it's not something mechanical, it's something health, and if it's something health, then he needs to get healthy, or else the ball's not going to go where he wants it to go. It's not a coincidence that his chase rate is down a lot this season mm. people are not chasing felix out of the zone and that's where he's made his money yeah well sorry <laughs> to make you do that <laughs> 
What sort of statistical trends move a pitcher away from declining to done other than all the things you just said and all the things that we've said about Brian Mitchell <laughs> this year? Is there anything else that is worth noting? Well, declining to done. So I guess it's really hard to say when someone is done, right? Like how many times did we go through this with David Ortiz? You get off mm-hmm. to a slow start and you think, well, he's at the end of his career and he's not actually at the end of his career until his career is over. And the only real true way that we can say with real confidence that a player is done is when his career is over. And we can say, well, he's definitely not coming back from this because he's finished mm-hmm. trying. Because otherwise, yeah. players are just so good. But mm-hmm. I don't know what you look for. Like, what for you, if you're looking for evidence that we have all these indicators, you can see the velocity is down, he's giving up harder contact or whatever. But you never know what, what sort of mechanical tweak might allow this player to at least have another good three months. So I don't really know mm-hmm. where the done threshold is, but it might be holding this to too high a standard. Yeah, if you lose a lot of speed, that's worrisome, obviously, and relative to that pitcher's previous speed, that might be really concerning, but you can find almost always someone who has succeeded while throwing that hard, right? You could Mm -hmm. look at Sabathia, or you could look at Adam Clymer, or anyone who is throwing in the 80s, and Bartol Colon, and these guys can do that. Obviously, not everyone can do that. It takes a lot of skill to do that, but... It's theoretically possible as long as you're throwing, I don't know, mid-80s or something, you can find someone who has succeeded at that speed relatively recently. So you can talk yourself into the idea that maybe he can just pick up a cutter or have great command all of a sudden or something like that. So, yeah, there's never any way to completely close the book until the player does that himself. But obviously, if you're just not missing any bats and you're walking a bunch of guys, then you're not going to last very long. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of uh, not a player who's done, but something that I just kind of, I haven't paid a lot of attention to it yet because uh, Cole Calhoun has never really been like that Mm. high on my radar. But for anyone who's curious, I would like to uh, recite a few numbers here. So I looked at April splits and at May splits. Cole Calhoun is currently 0 for 1 in a game on Wednesday as we're talking. He will probably shortly be 0 for 2. It's kind of his thing. So in March and April, out of everyone who batted at least 50 times, Cole Calhoun had the sixth lowest WRC+. It was a WRC plus of 12. That's the number 12. One, then a two. The four worst WRC pluses from April have not reached the 50-plate appearance threshold in May. Probably not a coincidence. Those players were mm-hmm. bad. The uh, the fifth lowest WRC Plus from April is Neil Walker, whose May WRC Plus is 151. So he's gotten yeah. a lot better, as you would expect. Cole Calhoun has gone from 12 to 2. Oof, <laughs> His WRC man. Plus got worse from 12 yeah. to 2. <laughs> And I'm looking, Uh, he's not the only player who was really bad in April who's stayed bad in May. There's Orlando Garcia hasn't hit in either month. Christian Vasquez hasn't hit at all in either month. Lewis Brinson very incredibly, sadly, hasn't hit at all early on. Chris Davis hasn't hit at all. But Cole Calhoun just kind of chugging along all the talk about how the Angels are interesting. They have Mike Trout. They have the best player in baseball. They have the most interesting player in baseball. They have the most fun shortstop to watch, arguably, in baseball. Mm -hmm. All this talent the Angels have. And they have an everyday right fielder with a WR splits of eight. Eight. The yeah. number eight. He's just <laughs> yeah. and I I don't know I don't know why. He's only thirty years no. old. He was uh, he was not a highly ranked prospect, so you think, well, maybe those are players who are uh, supposed to decline more abruptly than you would expect. No, not like this. You never expect no. something like this. So I would think that if this got any worse, I would begin to get really genuinely concerned about Cole Calhoun's overall well being. 
because this mm-hmm. seems like it would be something that would transcend just a baseball problem. But anyway, that's a Cole Calhoun conversation. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's a good thing you didn't have a brunch snack named after him because it would be very disappointing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I've been mystified by what's going on with him. But I mean, you mentioned the velocity loss. I mean, what about Patrick Corbin, who, yeah. as you wrote, he just suddenly lost like three miles per hour in the middle of a season when he was off to a great start, except that he's been just fine. <laughs> he continues to be good, like not as overwhelming as he was very early in the season, but if he's hurt or something, he's still pitching at a pretty high level. He's coming off a, a game when he went seven and gave up one run and struck out seven. He struck out at least a batter per inning or more than a batter per inning in eh, his last four starts. So seems like he's fine, but also seems like it's scary. So I don't know what to think about him. I was actually going to bring up Corbin as you were talking, and then you talked for just long enough that I forgot to. So yeah. Patrick Corbin, he had... He had a lot of grand slam on in his game on Wednesday. The start wasn't great, but I think he still struck out a bunch of guys. Uh, where, where did he end up in his start on Wednesday? Against the Reds, Corbin went six innings. He had six runs, which is bad, mm, but he had one good. walk and 10 mm. strikeouts, which oh, is very okay. good. Uh-huh. So Patrick Corbin in April, had a, he had a very low ERA, and he had 55 strikeouts in 40 innings. So Patrick yeah. Corbin in April struck out 37% of his opponents. That's very, very high. He has not kept that up in May. Patrick Corbin has struck out 29% of his opponents, which is good. That's very mm-hmm. high for a starting pitcher. His ERA has still been fine in May. But this one baffles me because he just, like as you mentioned, between starts, he lost three miles per hour. He's not just like, he's not dialing it back to get better control because he hasn't even touched the velocities that he touched in April. There's been no sign that he can throw as hard as he did. And ordinarily, when you see that for one start, you think, well, there's there's any number of problems that 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 could could be. You don't really get worried until I think you see it two starts in a row. And it was there two starts in a row. And it's now been there for, what is it, six starts in a row? Yeah, Yeah, six starts in a row. He has not even gotten, he's barely gotten up to 92 miles per hour, which is what he used to average. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to reconcile this because the only explanation I can come up with is that he's pitching well and he's hurt. Right. Because I, there's just nothing for something to last an entire month. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously something that Diamondbacks are not unaware of, I'm sure. So I guess they're not overly concerned unless they just think, well, we really need wins right now. But it's very strange. I don't know. I, I wonder whether we will find out. It's worrisome, except that he does keep striking people out. So I don't know. Okay. One silly one pre-play index. This is from Sean, Patreon supporter. Not sure if this is within the rules or not, but how effective would a pitcher be if he threw with both hands? Not an ambidextrous pitcher, but someone who used both hands to throw a pitch (laughs) (laughs) from over the top of his head. (laughs) Would this prevent platoon splits if we say that this is acceptable within the rules? (laughs) I Um, guess it would prevent platoon splits but there would be bigger problems than How? your platoon splits <laughs> okay so we've all seen like the child who bowls with both hands and that's yeah. That's not, and sometimes you'll see an an adult do it on a lark. But how? I, what is even the mechanism of because the ball is so small? It's not like it's a basketball. You can do this when you're like shooting a, a bad free throw. But yeah, what fingers does a, it come off? You have to hold it on your fingertips, I guess, just like yeah. between your your fingertips. <laughs> what uh, what kind of speed do you think you could get on a two handed over the head pitch? Okay, I'm trying to imagine this. Me too. You could. You could I think you could probably get to like. 
I don't know, 50 doing it. I don't know mm. what kind of accuracy this is because you kind of do the uh, the Ross Ohlendorf wind up, right? But then you just come yeah. right back over your own head. Yeah. So I'm just, <laughs> yeah, you'd, you'd eliminate some <laughs> platoon splits in the way that like over the top, extremely over the top pitchers don't really have big platoon splits. Yeah. You'd just get crushed by both lefties and yeah, right. So. You'd be absolutely <laughs> terrible. You'd get, what movement, what movement would you get? Oh, that, hmm. <laughs> this is no an idea. Eno Saris article. Yeah, it could be. I guess if you did it once in the middle of normal <laughs> pitching, you might just surprise the guy so much that you'd get away <laughs> with it. So that could work. Well, but... he'd be tipped off by the fact that you're not wearing a glove. <laughs> <laughs> that's true too yeah you'd be a really bad fielder that would be a problem couldn't protect yourself from liners i think it's a bad idea it's a very bad idea but <laughs> would it are you allowed so so we know jim abbott pitched with a, a special modified glove mm-hmm. are you required to have a glove on your person when you throw a pitch <laughs> i don't know we'll look this up later but that would be the the one well okay that's one of several reasons that no one would do this <laughs> yeah but it's uh, uh among the the legal ones yeah. That you wouldn't be able to do anything with the glove. You can't really keep it in your armpit because your arms are above your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'd look ridiculous. <laughs> you would never... I don't know. How how good of a player for how many years would you have to be so that you could do this <laughs> and people on the internet would be like, he broke out a new trick as opposed to <laughs> this guy is ridiculous and stupid. Yeah. Uh, I would, like This seems like the sort of thing, you know, you come across people who have one weird trick, one weird skill, and they do it so well that you'd never think that anyone could do something so well. And uh-huh. you'd also never think that anyone would bother to, but someone did. I would imagine that if there were someone who trained from like toddler age to do this, that we would be surprised by how well they could do it and how accurate they could be. But there's still just got to be a pretty low ceiling on this strategy. So <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think so. I hereby solemnly swear the next time I throw a ball around, I will try this at least five times. <laughs> yeah, me too. It, it could be an ephus at least, right? You could just kind of lob it in there. It kind of lends itself to a, a looping, arcing kind of pitch. So... You could do like the the trick pitch where you just throw the ball straight up and try to have it land like directly on home plate so that it's technically a strike, but you can't hit it. Maybe that would work. <laughs> I wonder what there's a lot of finger manipulation technique here that interests me because I don't know if you could throw different like pitch spins. Like you could definitely mm-hmm. do different velocities. I don't know if you could make the ball yeah. break because what would it do? It would tumble, I guess seems like maybe it'd be easy to throw a knuckleball using this. Like if, if it's on all of your fingertips at the same time, it seems like you wouldn't even be able to put much spin on it, really. So maybe you can throw a spinless pitch with this kind of delivery. I don't know. Do you think that there's a rule in the rule book that says you may throw with only one hand? <laughs> it seems like the sort of thing that you wouldn't actually have to write down. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I mean, if someone wants to do this, you'd be my guest, right? It's not like it's hurting anyone except that person. So I don't see why you would have to prevent this. What if a player was, what if, okay, what if there was a Jim Abbott to the, to the max, right? Mm-hmm. And he had, he had not any hands. Yeah. And what he did was he learned from a young age to flip a baseball with his foot. Yeah. Could you foot pitch? Because, I mean, you'd already throw harder than Kazuhisha Makita. Yes, right. 
I'm going to say you cannot foot pitch. I don't Probably know if you there's... need to wear a cleat. Yeah, I don't know if there's a rule. There seems like at some point you get to like this very elemental level where maybe there are no rules because it's just assumed that everyone would know. Like mm-hmm. you have to breathe while delivering a pitch. You cannot <laughs> hold your breath for 10 minutes while pitching. That is probably not a rule, but also probably doesn't have to be. <laughs> you may not pitch while becoming dead or while in the process of transitioning to rigor mortis. Right. <laughs> All right. Let's stat blast. Do we have a Brian Mitchell update since our last Brian Mitchell update? This is not I the stat last, but I got to take a look at this. <laughs> so let's. Uh, so the Padres, because they recently traded for for Phil Hughes, who's uh, who's bad, but another thoracic outlet syndrome guy. So the Padres have, I think, a monopoly now of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll get Matt Harvey next. But <laughs> so I don't know. The last time we talked about Brian Mitchell, but I can tell you that he pitched two days ago. He went one inning, and he allowed two runs. Brian Mitchell. <laughs> continues to be bad currently stands at 31 walks 20 strikeouts that is not the stat blast for this episode the stat blast for this episode relates to launch angle just like all Mm. baseball articles and conversations (laughs) so uh compared to last season league-wide according to statcast via baseball savant launch angle is up 0.7 degrees sound about right to you sure Great. You should, because that's what the numbers are. It's up to 0.7 degrees. So what I did is I looked at the launch angle increase on average. This is all average launch angle by count. There are 12 different counts, correct? Sound good to you? Mm -hmm. Yes, it should, because that's the truth. So (laughs) I looked at how things have gone up or gone down. And so uh, I I don't know the best way to present this, so I'm just going to do what I usually do and say them all. So in only one count has the average launch angle dropped by any amount. That's two and oh. It's gone down mm-hmm. 0.3 degrees, whatever. So I'm going to read up in ascending order of the uh, degree to which launch angle has changed relative to last season. There are 12 counts, I'll remind you. So one count has gone down 0.3 degrees. There has been an increase of 0.4, another increase of 0.4, increase of 0.5, Another of 0.5, another of 0.7, another of 0.7, then 0.9, 0.9, 0.9, 1.1. And then the one remaining count, 3 and 0 count, the average launch angle has gone up 5.1 degrees. Whoa. So we have four years of StatCast, right? Which really means three years and two months. Mm-hmm. So in 2015, we in a 3 and 0 count, green light count. 2015, the league average launch angle was 18.6 degrees. 2016, it was 17.8 degrees. The next year, it was 18.3 degrees. All of those hovering around 18 degrees. This year, 23.4 degrees. So it is an increase of about 5 or 6 degrees over where it's been before. Because it is a 3 and 0 count that we're looking at, it is also the smallest sample of any information that we're looking at. Batters don't swing that often, 3 and 0. This is something that I've looked at for a few weeks and have done nothing with because I need the sample to get bigger. Even last year in the full season, there were only like 350 batted balls that were tracked. But nevertheless, fun to think about the possibility that batters and teams are getting more confident and more willing to just let it rip in a 3-0 mm-hmm. count because you figure when you're at 3-0, and if you think you're getting a strike. So we, we talk pretty often about how players will trade contact for power, right? You swing mm-hmm. harder, try to hit more home runs than... 
you swing up, maybe you strike out more. I wonder how good baseball players are at taking maximum power hacks and also making sure they don't accidentally hit a bad fair ball, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, because at a 3 no count, you figure there's very little downside to just taking a monster hack. And I wonder if that's just something that's, that's catching on. Now, the, mm-hmm. the contrary would be that actually contact rate has barely moved in three no counts since last season. So maybe there's nothing here, but whatever. The stat blast is done and you can't argue <laughs> with it because it was all facts. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can look at exit velocity too and see if there's a, an increase on 3-0. I guess those things would go hand in hand, although not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily because when what you do find with home runs, generally speaking, home runs are not hit at a player's maximum exit velocity because actually to to hit a home run most of the time, unless you have a really steep uppercut swing, you are not making ideal contact. You are hitting a little bit under the ball. Mm-hmm. So most, like Aaron Judge's peak exit velocities most of the time are like line drives. You'll see a lot of like 110, 115 mile per hour line drives or ground balls that are hit just a few degrees above the horizontal mm-hmm. that get tracked and... uh so even though, sure, one might say it would have been obvious to look at the exit velocities just as part of the stat plus presentation, sure, you could say that it's almost obligatory to do so, and I didn't, which uh, you could <laughs> pin as a shortcoming on myself. But I've been the one in charge of this segment, and uh, and I chose to conclude it. So Ben, you, you have another question? What's that? Maybe you were just saving the second part for next week in uh. order to have to come up with fewer ideas for stat plus. I'd respond to you, but I don't want to ruin any surprises. (laughs) Well, I have a sort of stat blast of my own. Maybe it's not the official one, but it could have passed for a stat blast. And this is inspired by listener Brian, who writes, The Jays have been snake bit with injuries this year. I recently did a quick tally on the shortstop position and came up with seven different guys who have played the position this year. Eight if you count Tulowitzki, who hasn't played at all yet, so I don't count him, but I do count Russell Martin because he has. So Brian says, I was curious, what is the record number of players to play a single defensive position in a given year? And this is answerable via play index, so I did some play indexing. So the one thing you notice as you go position by position Every record for the most players used at that position, and I was just defining this as one game played at the position, every record comes from like the 1884 Union Association or whatever. (laughs) It's all these leagues that aren't really major leagues or is barely baseball by the standards of today. So for each of these positions, I'm going to cite the all-time record, but know that the all-time record is almost always 1880 or 1890-something, and so I'm going to give you the modern era record as well. Mm -hmm. So for shortstops, the record is 14. The modern era record is 10. That's the 1944 Dodgers, and of course that was the war years, so maybe that's somewhat sketchy too. Post-war... It is nine. That's the record. The 1987 Pirates had nine shortstops. So the Jays, through a third of the season, are already at seven. You figure, hopefully, they'll get Tulowitzki there at some point. I know people have suggested moving Donaldson over. I doubt that will happen. But anyway, they have the chance to get to the all-time record for shortstops, which is not something you want. But uh, we're going to see as I go through this list that a lot of the teams that had the most players ever at a position, not really good teams. And that's for (laughs) obvious reasons. But 
So catcher's all-time record is 13. Modern, quasi-modern record is 9. That's the 1914 Pirates and 1911 Phillies. First base, 13 is the all-time record and also the modern record. That's the 2000 Cardinals had 13 first basemen. That was, of course, the year before Pujols. So then they had the same first baseman for the next decade or so. They made up for it. Second base, all-time record is 15. And modern record is 11, the 2016 Padres, and they will come up again in just a moment. So remember (laughs) that team. Third base, 19 is the all-time record, and 14 is the modern record. That's the 2014 A's. And then we get to left field. 20 is the all-time record, 16 is the modern record, and that was just last year. The 2017 Dodgers, good team, exception to the trend, had 16 players play left field, and that is actually the record, at least the modern record. There has not been a higher number of players at any position in modern times than last year's Dodgers with 16 left fielders. Just continuing on. The record for center fielders all time, 24. What? The, eight, the 1884 Kansas City Cowboys, who went 16 and 63 in the Union Association, they had 24 center fielders. The slightly more modern record is 15. That's the 1914 Reds. And then lastly, the right fielders, 22 all time, 21, but that's the 1902 Giants. So if we want to go post 1902, It's a tie for 15 between the 1909 Senators, the 2004 Royals, and again, the 2016 Padres. So 2016 Padres had a whole lot of right fielders and a whole lot of second basemen, and they were a bad team. So that's the answer. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So I will also read this question because it is sort of stat blasty and involves play indexing. This is from Jamie who says, I just wanted to make sure that you are aware of Josh Tomlin's continuing record-breaking. With his 16 homers and 6 walks this year, Tomlin has allowed 158 home runs and 127 walks over the course of his career. Having more homers than walks over a career is basically unprecedented. Tomlin has 860 innings pitched. The next highest guy with more homers than walks is Zach Stewart who had 25 homers and 22 walks in 103 innings pitched. So to find someone who has done this, you have to go all the way from Tomlin, who is now up to 862 and two-thirds innings, to Zach Stewart, who had 103. So this is really rare, and Jamie continues, How long do you think that Tomlin, who just got demoted to the bullpen and has a, like, 8 ERA this year and a career ERA plus of 88, can keep going as a big leaguer without losing his job or reversing his home run to walk ratio. I think it's probably too late for him to reverse his home run to walk (laughs) ratio. I mean, I guess he could do it if he just suddenly allowed a bunch of walks all in a row. But if he keeps pitching the way that he has, I I don't think he's going to pitch long enough to overcome this. So he now has a 60 ERA+. Yeah, so I think with with Tomlin, and I remember having a conversation a little bit like this with Josh Towers about 10 or 15 years ago. You have these guys who get a few strikeouts, and then they just don't walk anyone. So I always think, well, if they could just get the batted balls under control, the guy would be be useful. And, I mean, the fact of the matter is that Josh Tomlin pretty much always has a walks per nine rate that starts with a one. He always has one of the lowest Mm -hmm. walk rates in baseball, and that does. Yeah, last year started with a zero. Yeah. 0.9 yeah. walks per nine. 
Yeah. And more more than that, home runs per nine. So, <laughs> I mean, the fact that he's 33 years old, he obviously doesn't have a whole lot left to do. But when you have someone who is so able to throw strikes, I think there's still, you can have a role for that guy. The average Josh Tomlin plate appearance doesn't last very long. And even if he's not really, really effective, he's still useful enough that someone like Josh Tomlin is kind of what you want in a long man in the bullpen, mm-hmm. maybe a mop-up man if that's still a role. So I don't know how much, I don't know how much more of a leash Josh Tomlin himself has has given that he's entering his mid-30s and he already didn't throw hard at his peak but Mm -hmm. something like this is a kind of salvageable player uh even though let's see what's josh talman's career war Mm 4.8 using era that's not so much given that he's thrown almost 900 innings but yeah he's still uh he's he's better than triple a fodder so i he i don't think he's gonna reverse his uh his numbers can't widening the gap now yeah He has 17 home runs allowed this year in 34 and a third innings. <laughs> that is, oh man, that's bad. He uh, obviously has allowed the most home runs in baseball this year, despite not pitching all that much. So he has 17 homers and six walks allowed this year. So he is putting some daylight between those two. Wilmer Font, 10 homers, five walks, one intentional. <laughs> Wilmer Font has thrown 17 innings. I, uh, yeah. I hope that Wilmer Font is able to reverse that, if only because if he could stop allowing home runs, if only for just like a week, it would make me look a lot less stupid. Um, <laughs> related, I was inspired. You were looking up the number of the total maximum number of players who have played a position, and it got me searching. So now maybe I'll just do a third, fourth, fifth stat blast. I don't know what this is, but I was yeah. I was curious about the worst offensive positions of all time, and. Mm. Uh, you know, there's there's been a lot of bad positions. The Red Sox catchers can't hit. The Marlins center fielders, which means Lewis Brinson can't hit. In right field, this is going back to TOPS Plus, old standby. Uh-oh. According to TOPS Plus, of course, this season is only a third of the way finished. You know all the caveats here. The three worst offensive teams in right field are this season. It's the uh, Philadelphia Phillies. They have a TOPS Plus of 60 in right field. The Diamondbacks have a right field TOPS Plus of 50. And the Cole Calhoun-led Angels in right field have a TOPS place of 28. 28 being worse than the actual all-time worst of the 2011 Boston Red Sox at 62. So Cole Calhoun, Chris Young, Jabari Blash, and Michael Hermosillo, I think, mm-hmm. if, he's a, if he's a player. They have 34 points of TOPS plus to make up between now and the end of the season if the Angels want to avoid a record. But I don't know when people are going to notice because of the whole Trout-Otani-Simmons factor. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris Patreon supporter says, listening to the recent episode about the home runs and the ball right now and the discussion of the baseball's properties brought to mind a what if baseball were different trademark question. What if MLB could choose what kind of ball was used in a given season? Some years they could choose a lively ball with a high coefficient of restitution and low drag. Other years it's a deader ball with the opposite characteristics. The teams don't know what kind of ball they're using until opening day. But once a selection is made, it stays the same for the whole season. Assume MLB can accurately control the quality of the ball. So baseball is just a wild card coming into the year. How does that affect things? How do teams prepare or not prepare for this? Well, I guess you put... would you put a higher priority on on bat to ball skills on contact as yeah. opposed to because you know someone that. like Eddie Rosario you know would be I don't know why he's the first example but he'd be in less demand someone like Miguel Rojas <laughs> would be in, in lesser demand because you would want to focus on the guys who you know can hit the ball hard but you still you wouldn't want players like a whole bunch of Chris Carter's because his power is his only skill and he doesn't do anything else 
anyway. So I guess, yeah, you're, you're kind of looking for, for contact. If, if you don't know how far the ball's going to go, you just want to make sure the ball's going somewhere, I guess would be yeah. the way to put it. Right. And especially if this is changing every year, it's not like you're going to remake your team every single year. So you can't really count on it staying the same. So you just go for contact. Yeah, I, I guess so. And maybe you hope that if you get contact-oriented players, if you know that it is a high home run year, maybe you can have them adjust. Maybe you can get them to start hitting for power or, you know, you put the ball in play. Maybe you're rewarded either way just because you're you're putting it in play. It's going farther sometimes and the times when it's not going farther, at least you are kind of giving yourself a chance. So that is probably the way to go, I guess. But you can only go so far with this, I think, and uh, especially since it's changing from year to year and it doesn't really affect people so much as long as it's affecting every team equally. I don't know that this would generally swing a race one way or another or make a good team bad or a bad team good, but it would make a difference on the margins. You know what would be fun is if, like, every so often you'll see, like, a three-point shooting contest and it'll have, like, the bonus ball, the golden ball, or the home run derby has, like, a golden ball. Just, like, Mm -hmm. once every, I don't know, like, 10,000 pitches or 2,000 balls or something. I don't know. But just once every so often, baseball just mixes in just, like, one blue-pink gender reveal baseball, and then the batter Mm -hmm. swings and hits it, and it just puffs up in front of his face, and everyone has a great laugh. And it it doesn't count for anything. It's just a (laughs) good little video. And it gets, yeah. like, dust everywhere. Everyone's all colorful. It'd be great. And people like, oh, it's, a, it's a boy. And they'll be like, I didn't even know I was pregnant. Uh, <laughs> right. No. All right. Question. Uh, this is a very quick one. Jeff, San Francisco. Hanley Ramirez was recently designated for assignment by the Red Sox, effectively severing ties between them. Before the season, I remember there was some speculation as to whether Ramirez would accumulate enough plate appearances for an expensive option for 2019 to vest. After Ramirez clears waivers, the Red Sox will still be paying his salary for the rest of the 2018 season. If a new team signs Ramirez, they would only be responsible for the prorated minimum salary. I believe he has been released now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that. And rest of the question is whether the vesting option would still be active even after being released by the Red Sox. If memory serves, the number of plate appearances Ramirez would need for his 2019 option to vest is relatively small. If he gets picked up by another team and gets enough at-bats for that option to vest, what would happen? Was the option rendered void after getting designated for assignment? Would the option still vest with the Red Sox still being responsible for the 2019 salary? If the option were still active, wouldn't it allow for some teams to screw up future payroll flexibility of its rivals? It would, but it's void. So mm-hmm. unfun answer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I'm not sure, but I feel like there was something similar to this. Was it Jose Reyes? When Jose Reyes was dropped, he had a vesting option. Uh, I guess maybe it was a club option, but in any case, there was a conversation about that. Like, does the option remain in place if a player changes teams after he is released? But no, I I don't know exactly what the explanation is. I didn't email the commissioner, but I guess the vesting option is specific to that contract with the Red Sox. And Mm -hmm. if he's no longer on the Red Sox, then yeah, you can't just pick him up and like you can't be the Orioles and just pick up Hanley Ramirez, who granted would probably make them better anyway, but (laughs) then just start them every day and make the Red Sox pay a bunch of money. But that Mm -hmm. would be admittedly hysterical and it would be a way to make (laughs) baseball better. Yes, that would be very petty and I would like it. All right. (laughs) Last question. Darius says, about a year ago, I made a trip to the U.S. and saw my first baseball game. I instantly fell in love with the sport and became a regular follower of the game since. Now I would really love to get more into advanced stats and tactics, but for someone relatively new to the sport, I feel a little over-challenged. So here's my question. 
What would you recommend to me and maybe others with a similar problem? Which of the many books and blogs should I read? Or should I pay attention to specific things while watching a game? What's a good approach while trying to learn what is actually going on in the ballparks? Thanks so much in advance and best wishes from Europe. Is it too much cheating to just say you're on the right track by listening to this podcast? Yeah, no, he's already doing that. (laughs) But uh, if you don't know a whole lot about advanced stats in baseball and you listen to this podcast, either you will soon stop listening to this podcast (laughs) or you will soon know more about advanced stats in baseball. So that does seem like a pretty good way to do it. But what are some other ones? Yeah, so it's there are degrees where the the level of detail that you and I have to or at least choose to get into is by no means necessary to understand what's happening in the game if Mm -hmm. I mean if you want to drill all the way down and try to figure out exactly why this guy was able to hit this pitch at this time or something then maybe it makes sense to really get in there but otherwise I'm not sure I mean something like exit velocity is it's easy to understand and it's not complicated and I don't think you need to be much OPS is easy to understand and all that is is a combination of OPP which is easy to understand and slugging percentage which is still pretty easy to understand even though Mm -hmm. sacrifice flies and bunts get weird so I don't think that you need to end up thinking about WRC plus even war I think it would be worth understanding generally but you don't need to know all the specifics you don't need to cling to it you don't need to defend it or try to make it better or understand all the ins and outs but in terms of places to start I guess it's been so long but I started with reading old baseball prospectus manuals uh Mm -hmm. annuals I should say they were wonderful they made it easier there were fewer stats back then didn't even have batted balls but that was back in the uh what equivalent average days EQA Mm -hmm. so I think I kind of got started with EQA and and on base percentage and went from there but when you when you know that batters want to hit for power and get on base and you know that pitchers want to strike batters out and not allow home runs mm-hmm. things kind of fall into place pretty quick from there so I would uh, I guess I wish I had a quicker answer to this as opposed to you're in the right place and you'll get it pretty soon I don't know what would mm-hmm. you say Well, a lot of the books that I read when I was getting into this stuff, I mean, they're outdated in certain ways now, but I think they would probably still be pretty good primers for people who are interested. So books like Baseball Between the Numbers and Moneyball, obviously, and The Numbers Game by Alan Schwartz. I mean, Baseball Between the Numbers will use stats that maybe are not in use today and maybe will even reach some conclusions that people would not reach today. But I think the spirit of inquiry in there and the way that the studies are constructed definitely inspired me at the time and I think would still be pretty instructive. And I always recommend that people really just look around the Fangraphs glossary It's actually a great resource, whether you're looking at specific stats or concepts. There are pages in there for almost everything that you could think of, and it's really pitched towards introductory readers in some cases. So that's a good way to do it. There are recent books that are kind of designed to be your introduction to this world, whether it's Brian Kenny's recent book or Keith Law's recent book. It's Ahead of the Curve and Smart Baseball, respectively. So... There are a lot of resources out there. I I think those are the ones that come to my mind first. Mm -hmm. All right, so we will end there. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged their support. Alex Crisafuli, Aaron Weens, Joe Simmons, Jeevis, and Matt O'Donnell. Thanks to all of you. 
You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, heading toward 8,000 members in there. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. If you missed our shows that went up over the holiday weekend, please do go back and check them out. I thought they were fun ones. We talked about baseball betting back in the 80s. We talked about home runs in the baseball. We talked about baseball expansion teams. Talked about why Casey at the bat actually wasn't really to blame, or not as much as we typically believe. Evergreen content. And please replenish our mailbag. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcastofangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will be back to talk to you soon. Oh, they're touching. They're touching each other. They're feeling. Oh.